So we are starting the book of Judges today. And it is a study that will take us um, down a dark road. And so I hope today as you begin this book and you start to see it unfold, that you would um, just get a clearer picture of our condition and where we are. Rebecca Manley Pippert states, whatever controls us really is our God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. It's important that we, as we start to reflect on judges, that we recognize that. Tim Keller states, we live and work among a great variety of gods, not only those of the formal religions, but also the gods of wealth, celebrity, pleasure, ideology, achievement. Our era is characterized by the phrase which sums up the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is like something you will see as you get towards the end of the book. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sometimes when you think about the ancient world, you might think, well, those were, I mean, I used to I think, well, maybe they're really simple people or they're not really thoughtful people or they're not, you know, I don't know, just have all these different kind of views of what they're like. But I I think it's really important for us to understand like the society of Canaan, although certainly we have like different things today that we would say that we've advanced in, they were living in many ways like all societies live and the way that our society lives. They were living in a time and really when the Israelites went in there, And they moved into that culture and that society. Uh, Spiritual pluralism was a part of that culture. Meaning that there were like uh, many different um, people believing different things and different gods and all different types of stuff. So that they kind of stepped into this, these nations and, and they really are. There's like, like kind of these people that are worshipers of this God or that God or that there's people out there that, that maybe don't believe in God or whatever But there was this kind of, they walked into this kind of world. And I think it's important that we understand that because we want to see that this is not that far from us. Like when you step into the Canaan, uh, it would be like stepping into the United States of America. And I think you just need to get that in your mind and say, of course, there's all of these things that were present then and present in all types of uh, cultures and times and seasons that are just always there. And so they're facing many different struggles. Uh, God is um, going to want, he's he's encouraging them, demanding of them to follow him as they walk into this place. And so I hope for you that you'll see that and kind of think about that today. God wants them and calls them to know and love and obey him rather than do what was right in their own eyes. That's, That's what he called them to. And you'll see their response to that. But I I just want to remind you, Joshua 23 and 24, uh, Joshua said to the people, he said, serve the Lord. I mean, that's what basically he says. And they said, oh, of course we will. And he's like, 
No, you won't. Uh, And you don't understand something. God is a jealous God. Put away the gods of Egypt and the gods of Canaan and you serve the Lord. And it's interesting. They will serve the Lord for a season. But after Joshua's gone, you're going to see all kinds of crazy things take place. Judges is really a downward spiral. And if you've been on our website this week or you've seen our Facebook stuff, you'll see like uh, uh, we have a piece of artwork that kind of reflects that. That it's, it's like a spiraling downward. And, and really, you're kind of left with like, are you serious? Could it get this bad? I mean, this is God's people. What's taking place? And so I, I hope you'll see as we move through this, you'll see this period and, and understand it for what it is. And then we're going to seek to help you find hope in the gospel. But I, I hope you'll, you'll, you'll get a very clear picture. Now, another thing just to note is that when you think of a judge, we think of internal matters. Like, for instance, you know, if, if we were, um, if Justin did something against me, and uh, one of you guys in, in, or, or uh, ladies in here were a judge, and, and I said, like, that Justin, he robbed me of this, you know, and so then we go before the judge, and they're going to decide on the matter. That's what I usually think of. I think of standing before that, someone dealing with internal matters. In the Old Testament, when you're looking at the period of judges, uh, we're looking at that and we're saying, no, these are external affairs, not just internal affairs, but external affairs. And really, in a way, God is using these judges to execute judgment upon people that have oppressed his people. And so um, I think that's helpful because you'll see this in Judges 2.16 says, Then the Lord raised up a judge who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So their role was more of a saving rather than just kind of keeping order within. Now, um, I think it's also just important to note this, and it's very shocking, is that these judges are not like something you say, Hey kids, tonight we're going to read about a judge, and I want you to follow their example. Like, that's not something... But the reality is, a lot of things you read in the Bible, it's not like, hey, follow the example of these great humans. I mean, they're the greatest, you know. That's not, sometimes people read Bible stories that way, and that's what they do, and that's kind of the content. But the reality is, like, you start reading the Judges, and you say, this is not a book of virtues. It is something that describes for us that there is a God of mercy who is long-suffering in spite of the people. Like, that, that's kind of where you ultimately say there's only one hope here, and the hope is from heaven, not on earth. That's kind of the deal. So it really points us in a very beautiful way to the gospel. And I think you will see that on display. It's something very uh, amazing. Now, chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, 6, and I'm going to quote him several times today. Tim Keller calls this half-hearted discipleship. Half-hearted discipleship. And I was like, after I thought about that for a while, I thought it was very unique. And I think that's helpful in a way to kind of say that. It, in, a, in a way, like chapter 1 is like traveling down a road. And you're, if it was from the perspective of the people, they, the, and they were describing the situation, uh, they may say, like, here's what happened. There was a little success, and then little bumps in the road, and it was like failure. And... Uh, it was just really hard. You don't understand. It's hard. I mean, I, it's not, 
it's not an easy road out there. I mean, going into Canaan is difficult. And, and you, so you might kind of say, poor little Israel. They, they just didn't understand it, how hard it was going to be, you know. Well, you get to chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, and God interprets what happened. And you're like, uh-oh. Like, it's not poor little Israel. It's like Israel was in disobedience to God. And so we're going to see that on display. Now, let's look at verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to read all of this today. One, because some of the places and some of the names are very difficult to pronounce. And I'm not, you know, still struggling with, you know, getting the pronunciation thing down for some of these places. No, but some of it is kind of, it is like there's a lot of different places and it can get us all confused. So verses 1 through 11, 17 and 18. I just want you to see a few things because we're looking at quite a section today. And what I want you to see first, Joshua dies. And once he dies, the people do say, okay, God, what are we going to do next? Where do we go? What's going to happen here? The Lord says, Judah, you go first. So do you remember right before, so during Joshua's time, Joshua had led the people into the land. They'd had victory and some rest. Then right as Joshua was getting old, the Lord said, okay, break up the land. So over here, this was for Judah, and this was for Simeon, and this was for Benjamin. And you, know, you kind of walk down through there, and everybody got their spot. And then they were to go and drive out the people that were left over in those places. So Judah is supposed to go first. Judah is going to be the, tribal, uh, the tribe where the king is going to come from. So you kind of already see glimpses of that. But Judah is called upon to go and do this. Now, there's a little bit of like where you're like, hold on, Judah, what are you doing here? He asked Simeon to go with him. And it feels just a little bit like, mm, is this partial? Just like a, a little misstep along the way. God certainly does give him some victory. And, and there's some, some beautiful things going on here. But still, there's an aspect of it where you're just like, is it? Is he just taking, it's almost like a, I think I'm going to call my brother and take him with me. You know what I mean? Like, I might could whip that guy, but if he was with me, both of us together, surely, you know, we could take him out, right? And so there's an aspect where you think, mm, is this a little bit halfway, like a partial obedience? Uh, another thing that you see is there's this Lord of Bezek. This Lord, this king, he is like um, um you see what happens to him. It's, it's the oddest thing. Some of you write, read it and say, hey, don't even quote that today. But they like cut his thumbs off and his big toes off, right? Which was a, a time, in that time period, was like a big state of humiliation, a way of displaying their complete control over this person, leaving someone without the ability to do anything. But the problem is, God didn't say do that. God said, wipe these people out. You are, I mean, really, in a way, they were God's instrument of justice upon the people that they were going to face in the land. And so, even though that king understood that all, he was reaping what he had sown, it was kind of one of those things where it's like, is this another little partial kind of step? Now, in the middle of all of this, you kind of think, okay, it, it's not bad, bad. Like, because you're seeing some victory, you're seeing some things. You think, man, we're kind of moving in a good direction. And another thing that you see is look at verses 12 through 16. There's this mention of Caleb. Caleb was uh, a man who, like, before they went into the promised land, 
the first time they were to enter in, they didn't go in because they were scared. Caleb and Joshua were saying, go, go, go. So Caleb didn't die with that generation that walked in unbelief. He actually lived and was able to enter into the promised land just like Joshua was. And you see in Caleb like something of his uh, bravery all the way through. And um, he moves forward, spiritually speaking, uh, by faith at every time you kind of see him. Like he is courageously moving forward. Even here, when he uh, looks for a man for his daughter. Now catch this. He is looking for a man that walks like he walks. A man of courage and a man of faith. It's a very beautiful picture there. He is asking for it. Now some people might say, Ooh, if I was a daughter and my dad's just saying, find a man that's, that's willing to step up and you know, fight you know, courageously. Uh, you might be like, well, because he get to pick them, you know, I mean, but the deal is like in that time period, that was a great honor. And he was honoring his daughter by finding a husband that would be like him. So Caleb's family and, and the things surrounding him are always encouraging. There's a man who does step up and you even see Caleb's daughter uh, and he's victorious, Othniel, which we'll see him later. But you'll see that um, even his daughter kind of Ask for something from Caleb, and it's almost like she is ready to settle down in the land. Like it's a bright spot, Caleb's family is. Now, one last thing I want you to see about Caleb, real quick. It says um, Caleb drove out those three sons of Anak. That, that, that was a very rough group for him to go after. So you think he's older and he is courageous. That, that's something that ought to be. Have you ever said somebody say, I'm just going to sit down and not do anything because I'm older? Caleb would be like smacking you, right? He'd say, are you serious? Like, those are the greatest days of your life. You have the ability right now of walking by faith for 30 years. Like, that's the time when you ought to run the hardest, you know? So, anyway, when we're looking at that, you're looking at chapter, as you start, Judah's going in. You see some victory, even though you kind of think, ah, are they really fully heart devoted to the Lord? Uh, there's some indication that there's a little bit of like not completely following the Lord. But when you get to verse 19, again, skip 20 because we already looked at that. But you look at 19 through the end of this chapter, good night. You are not going to be excited. You ready? Verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had iron chariots. He could not. Is that true? He could not? What changed? He's had victory. He's seen the success. Like, not only under Joshua, but now Judah as a tribe has watched... God delivered. Now, maybe the first people he faced, they were not as frightening. And maybe Judah began to think, you know, maybe in his own strength he's doing this. But, but he's, as, as a tribe, you think maybe they looked at it and said, oh, yeah, it wasn't that big a deal. Now they face someone with iron chariots and they say, we cannot do it or, or could not. Every step in your journey of faith, right? We, we keep taking steps. God doesn't, uh, I, I don't think it's often that he wants you to go 
backwards, like into further, like like to to like go from a twenty year old back to a five year old. He's wanting you to grow up, right? He's wanting you to keep growing and growing and growing. So that maturity, spiritually speaking, only happens as I'm taking steps of faith one by one. And, and it's almost like they become increasingly more difficult, you might say. And I think that's kind of what you see in this picture. And when it got to that, when it's like you really have to take this great step of faith, they fail to for, push forward by faith. What did God say if they would just trust him, obey his word, do what he said? He said he would be with them. If they left those people in the land, if they said, I cannot, I can't. It was funny, uh, Will got an education on that yesterday about saying, I can't, I can't. What is it, I can't? What is he saying? I won't. Right? I'll say, you can do it. I can't. Why can't you? Because I just can't. No, you can, but you won't. But then I have to, like, make a few little threats, and we get over the, you know, sometimes that happens. Okay. So, common but faithless sense, Keller says, begins to prevail here. Judah doesn't trust God And so they don't secure their inheritance so that they can worship God without compromise. The remaining Canaanites will prove to be a thorn in their side for centuries to come. I I thought this was an interesting quote too. It is not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessings or from worshiping God wholeheartedly. It is our lack of faith in His strength. You hear that? It is not our lack of strength that prevents us from enjoying God's blessings or from worshiping God wholeheartedly. It is our lack of faith in His strength. Like a cancer, this spreads to the rest of the tribes. It's kind of what you see, verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out. Now, if I was like... Reading my, if I was sitting where you are now, I had my Bible open, I would probably underline did not drive out. Because it's one of those things of like, like he called half hearted discipleship. They're not, they're not fully moving forward. They did not drive out, you see in verse 21. Look at verses 22 through 26, the house of Joseph. And you're looking at what takes place with them. They moved into a place and they found someone, which again, God does not tell them to do this. God says, totally take these people out. And they make kind of a covenant, a relationship with some people there because they kind of wanted to make a deal with how to get in rather than trust God. And they make a commitment with a Canaanite and he continues to live among them. Verse 27 and 28, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. And you know, notice what they did, though, in verse 28. They put the Canaanites to forced labor when they became strong. Why would they do that? Why would you do that? What would be a nice thing about putting a group of people 
under forced labor. Why would you do that rather than completely driving them out? Why would you do that? How many of you would like several household servants? Do your yard, make your meals, wash your clothes, clean your house, work the crops in the field. Would that... I mean, that, that sounds like a pretty nice kind of thing. Like, they, that's what they're saying here. I think that they're looking at stuff and say, how could we make life easier for ourselves? Well, there's this easier way, it appears, and that's what they take. Verse 29, and Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants, but again, subjected them to forced labor. Verse 31 and 32, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. You know what they did? They lived among them. It doesn't say that they forced them. I mean, you say, well, they never, at least they didn't force them into to, uh, like bondage or slavery. But they just lived with them. They thought, oof, this could be a comfortable life. They seem to have, you know, a pretty good thing going here. We'll just move in alongside them. They'll be our neighbors. We'll be friends. Partial obedience leads to really no obedience at all. Verse 33, you see... Again, this issue of forced labor, where they're going to overtake them and then force them. Verse 34 through 36, you see the weakness of the ability to actually go into the plain. How is the plain better than the hills? How would the plain be better than the hills, in a way? Down in the valley, what do you think you get to do? That's where you, you don't, I mean, have you ever tried to, on the side of a mountain, grow crops? I mean, maybe something, but like down the valley, that's where you get, you know, you could kind of grow stuff, and they're kind of pushed back, and then, again, we see this struggle of, the, this issue of like, ultimately, one, one group that, that goes in and says, okay, we're going to end up forcing these people uh, into labor. It's kind of depressing here. Like, you're watching this, and you're saying, okay, we kind of start out on a good note, and then it starts plunging down, and you see they did not, they could not, it started out, then did not, did not, did not, did not, did not, did not. They would not. And you'll um, notice, I think, something about true discipleship. It, it, you're taking risk and relying on the Lord. It, it's kind of... It's something that you're, you keep pressing in. That's kind of the idea of true discipleship. You press into the Lord and you're not trusting in your own merit, your own strength, your own ability, or all the things that you do to try to make your life comfortable. I'm, I'm pressing into Him. I'm walking by faith and, and I'm seeking uh, to do what would be uh, pleasing in His sight, certainly. And in the midst of that, that, that's kind of the goal. It's like that I would walk by faith, not by sight. That's a hard thing for me, for probably many of you. 
that, that we would trust God and move forward and, and allow Him to do what He desires to do in our life. Faith in God's promises means not always following the expected rational path. As Joshua dies, it will take real faith to conduct this campaign in the way that God wishes. And what he wishes is that they would move forward by faith. Now, you see here, they do two things wrong. One is, like normally you would say, uh, people would say, just from a thinking person, would say, that's a really powerful army, we're not going to overtake them. Faith says, go take it. The other one is, is to say, that's a really weak group of people, what do we need to mess with them? God says, go take the place. In both ways, they kind of made missteps. In one, they're frightened, they're not going to go. In the other, they oppress. Both are sins against God. And that's what you see kind of on display here. And it's the, a lot of these things that you will see throughout the rest of the book. Can you ever, I mean, have you ever thought about a time where you thought, man, I was really brave as I walked by faith? You ever had a moment like that? Where you're like, I'm, I, I move forward by faith. I remember that. I remember God's empowerment and I move forward by faith. I just kind of like didn't think about like just, oh, this is, I couldn't figure it all out. I just trusted God and moved forward by faith. Are you there now? Are you in that spot? Or are you kind of just in, I don't know, in a stationary spot? Are you still relying on God? And obeying Him at every step? If not, why not? Are you in a state of kind of half-hearted discipleship? Not fully trusting Him in the way that you are. Now let's look at what God says. You ready? Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from the Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. God reminds them of the time in Gilgal where they had a time, that was when he kind of rescued them, reminded them of his love for them. All those things happened there. He made covenant with them. He reminds them of that place as he mentions this. And it's just a reminder of God's salvation in their life. And then there's this assessment. He says, you have disobeyed me. I told you to never break covenant with me, but you have not obeyed my voice. You have not done what I said for you to do. You've broken faith. It's like you're not trusting me fully. It's not wholehearted obedience. It's partial obedience. That's one of the most... I mean, it's, it's difficult for us to understand that, but partial obedience, even with my children, when I say go do this once, twice, three times... Four times, go do this. They slowly do what I say. They do it maybe in part. 
So for me, it's like if I ask them to do something or tell them to do something, that's what they are to do, right? And then when I say it, they are to do it and finish the job. It's not like I went, go pick up the clothes in your room and you pick up one piece. Go pick up your toys and you pick up one toy. God is not interested in you saying, well, I'll just partially obey what you tell me to do. That, that ultimately, I'm telling you, with a child or with people, that will lead to, ultimately, that like you will say, disobedience will reign in your home when you just say, meh, part, partly. Just kind of do what you want when you want to. I don't really mean what I say. That's a frightening thing. And God wants wholehearted obedience. And He does not just want you to do it, but we should do it with a glad heart. And that's what we're hopefully moving towards. And again, it is not the way it is all the time. We struggle with that. If If you say you don't struggle with that, I think something is wrong with you. I mean, there are times where you absolutely will struggle with that. All of us do. But we just need to understand apathy leads to apostasy and apostasy leads to anarchy. It just does. I'm apathetic to the things of God. It leads me towards moving away from God. And when I eventually kind of move away from God, I will totally reject God. And the need for renewal is all the time. It's not, again, it's not like any of you could say, oh, well, I've never seen that path in my life. Of course you've seen that path. You've seen that path in your life this week, if you're honest. But again, it's just this consistent thing that we're going to kind of, you are struggling along the way. And you are having a tendency to say, we are so prone to say, I can't. That, that even happens again in my home. Sometimes I'll say, this needs to be done. I, uh, uh, put your socks on. Oh, put your nighttime clothes on. Just, uh, I can't. Take your food and put it in your mouth. I just, it just, uh, why? I'm just like, what are you talking about? This took 30 minutes. Like, it's supposed to take five. Like, what do you do? You know, anyway, Will isn't here, so I better be quiet. But he knows what I'm talking about because he'd probably look at Trump here and say, yeah, every once in a while I'll pull that, that one out. And I'll be like, Will, you know you can. It's not I can't, but I won't. The root of our disobedience is essentially failing to remember who God is. And the reverse is true. For as long as we remember who He is, we will serve Him wholeheartedly, radically, and joyfully. It's very important. I mean, we have to constantly, like I said, this morning, hopefully, it's like a spiritual checkup for me and you and all of us as we're looking at this. We can come up with so many false gods. And they are snares and traps. They enslave us. 
Verse 4 and 5, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. They recognized that. They recognized what was going on in their hearts, in their actions. You might have to ask today, say, where, where is it that I'm saying, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And God is saying, no, you won't. You won't. You won't do it. You won't move forward. You won't do what I'm calling you to do. I want you to look at verses 1 and 3 just for a moment. Because I, I think it's important to see. There, there's this promise of God where He says, I will never, I will never break my covenant. And then there's this aspect in verse 3 where you kind of are looking at that and you're saying, he's saying, I tell you, I'll I'll, I'll never do this. There's this promise and then there's this warning. That's kind of something you see throughout the scriptures. And I think it's important that you see that and understand that because you kind of have to ask yourself, what is God going to do with these people that he promises something to and yet says there's some conditions you must obey. What is he going to do with them? How how is this going to work out? How do you resolve that dilemma? I mean, have you ever struggled with that? Where God will make these promises that he's going to do something for these people, and then at the same time, there's this warning, if they break faith, the judgment that's going to fall. Have you ever thought about that? How does God fix that? How is this going to be resolved? I think there's one place that you and I as Christians have to go. And we have to go to the cross. And we go to the cross and we say, what? We say, God has made these promises. He has promised that He would save a people for Himself, right? And then he's threatened judgment for all lawbreakers. They're going to come under the curse. They're going to be damned forever. They have no hope. And you say, well, then how is this going to work? There's a holy God. There are sinful people. And he has made a promise that he is going to rescue. And he's made this promise that he will keep. That he will bring to pass. And while at the same time you're saying, but hold on just a second. He's holy. can't be with his people. How does the cross answer that? At the cross, our sin was given or placed upon Christ. So that his righteousness could be given to us. At the cross, God made him who knew no sin... To be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, God poured out His wrath on His people in the person of His Son. He satisfied both justice, because sin was punished, and loving faithfulness, since He is now able to accept and forgive at the cross. He is both just and justifier, Romans says. The cross is where we find the tension resolved. So we're able to live forgiven, obedient lives despite also living sinful, disobedient lives. 
You catch that? The cross is where we find the tension resolved so we're able to live forgiven, obedient lives beside, despite also living sinful, disobedient lives. The cross is the place where we find the freedom to accept ourselves without being proud and to challenge ourselves without being crushed. That's one of the most difficult things for us. When we really examine ourselves, we say, there is no hope. On Sundays, we might say, oh, there's hope. I'm great. Earlier, Andrew said, people oftentimes say, I'm a pretty good person. Then you might meet someone say, no, I'm the greatest wretch you've ever met. And the cross comes and says, you are a wretch, but you've been given acceptance. So that whenever I'm struggling through that, I might say, man, I, one day I might be sitting there and God needs to humble me. The cross helps do that. Other days I'm so broken, the cross lifts me up, Right? And for us as Christians, I think that's what we kind of, we live in that tension so often. If you are not a believer here today, you need to understand that you're not living in that tension. You you really are not. You do not, you're not a recipient of the promise. You have no hope. You're without hope in this world. You are controlled by your sin and dominated by it. You are under the wrath of God. You know nothing of life. You know nothing of life today or life to come. And I would just say to you, there is a God. He is holy. He demands of you, turn from your sin and trust in Christ. That does not mean that you'll become perfect. Right? That's what we've dealt with. There's still that struggle, that tension. But it is calling us, the gospel is calling us to turn to Him and keep turning to Him. And in that fight, keep turning to Him and walk in faith as a people. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would open our hearts and our minds. You would stir our affections for what You would have for us. Lord, we pray that as we do look at judges that we would see the downward spiral that idolatry leads us to, the bankruptcy of trusting in the idols of this age. We pray that as we lead our families that we would show our children that pleasure and possessions and power and acceptance and whatever the list is that the world is throwing at them, that those will not satisfy. That they are broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And we pray we'd lead them to the water that leads to eternal life in Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.